Are we on mission? Well, what is our mission? The mission that we, we stated here at Green Tree is to know Jesus Christ and to serve him in joyful obedience. We've had some sermons on that already. And to make him known by doing three things. Growing disciples, planting churches, and renewing communities. And what we're focusing on this morning is growing disciples, making disciples. Now, if you've been at church for any matter of time, any length of time, uh, you've heard that term, disciple. Um, what does it mean? And what do we mean by it? Well, if you just look at the dictionary definition, uh, here's one definition of it. A follower or, uh, or student of a teacher, leader, or a philosopher. And some people would consider themselves disciples of, of thinkers like uh, uh, Ayn Rand or Tony Robbins or even Joel Osteen. They find helpful principles for living life in some of their teaching and they apply it to their lives so they can become you know, a better version of themselves. Uh, many people uh, believe that to be a Christian, uh, it means that you are an admirer of Christ's teachings. Um, maybe some of you in this room, you think of being a disciple. Well, yes, I I, Jesus said some very profound things. That's why I come to hear more about that because it, it helps me be a better version of myself. Now, I'm not seeking to invalidate that definition or, or, or to refute it in any way, but I, I do want to say that when the Bible talks about being a disciple, and when we at Green Tree talk about being a disciple, we mean something much more than being an admirer of Jesus' teaching. And we're going to look at a lot of verses this morning. But I think the best way to enter into this discussion is this passage from 1 John chapter 3, and we start to get the sense of what it means, what God wants when we are disciples. So, 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Would you pray with me? Lord and Father, we come to you this morning, and we do thank you for meeting with us in worship already by your spirit, and we pray now as we, as we submit ourselves to your, your word, that by your spirit you would use it to do something extraordinary. Lord, uh, we pray that as we look at this subject of discipleship, as we look at what your word has to say about it, that indeed we might be brought under the captivating vision of transformation of being like Jesus. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit, we might leave this place more like Christ than when we came. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about it. Don't raise your hand. Don't shout out something. But just think about it for a second. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Now, maybe you want to be, uh, you aspire to be like the entrepreneur, futurist, Elon Musk. Or maybe you want to be like uh, businesswoman, Meg Whitman, who is the CEO of Hewlett Packard. Or... Uh, you want to be king of cool like George Clooney. Or some of you want to be Gal Gadot. You, know, you want to be Wonder Woman. I know some of you here want to be Wonder Woman. 
When I was in high school and early in my college career, I wanted to be John Byrne, that guy. And then you're asking yourself, why would he want to be that overweight, middle-aged guy? Well, because John Byrne was the best comic book artist of his day. And when I bought Captain America issue 248 in 1980, which I still have, I was enthralled by the artwork in that, in that magazine. And his work with Chris, writer Chris, Chris Claremont brought to life the incarnations of Wolverine and the X-Men that are so popular in movies today. So I worked. I worked hard. I, I drew, and I, I drew again, and I did life studies, and I went to classes, and I went to art school, and I created my own characters and storylines, and there's some of them very poorly preserved from when I was 18 years old, some of my characters <clears throat> made in conjunction with some of my friends. So, so, so I, those are my drawings based on characters, one character someone else created. <clears throat> but I wanted to be a comic book artist in the vein of John Byrne. That's who I wanted to be. And in time, I began to learn more about John Byrne. And along with being a creative giant, John Byrne was also incredibly difficult to work with. Oh, he's like so many artists that I know, just opinionated and difficult and unyielding and sometimes undermining <clears throat> undermine the writers he worked with, including his great partner, Chris Claremont. Is that who I wanted to be? Now, I imagine most of us here, you know, we're mature people, right? And we're not trying to be somebody other than who we are. We just want to be the best version of ourselves, uh, that true self. And we, we look to other people uh, as heroes, uh, people who seem to have realized their true self, and we follow after them and, and try to understand how they realized who they, they really were. But we have to ask ourselves the question, as we look at other people, as we look to people who are heroes, who are we really at our core? And who best realized that? Well, at our core, the scriptures teach us that you are meant to be like God. You're made in his image, creative, wise, strong, kind, faithful, summarized in a word, righteous. That is who you are created to be. And who has best realized that? Any guesses? Say it like you mean it. Christ. Christ has best realized these things. In God's work of redemption, this is what he seeks for us, that we should be like him. Transformation. That's the vision of discipleship that the Bible holds forth for us. Now, perhaps that's not your understanding of discipleship, of being a follower of Jesus and maybe you don't currently find that compelling, but I hope that you'll see uh, through this message that it is an extraordinary vision. <clears throat> it's a compelling one, and, and hopefully, ultimately, it will be a transforming vision. And God's desire for us to change, to be transformed, comes in two ways. It comes as individuals who want to be transformed, but also what God seeks for us as a community. 
uh, how we interact with one another and the world. God wants us to be like Christ in those ways as well. As individuals, we see from the scriptures, as I just said, that we're made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 26 tells us that. And as we're created uh, in God's image, we're also brought into perfect relationship with God with the satisfying work of taking the Garden of Eden, cultivating it into civilization, a garden city. That's how we started. And then it all went to hell, quite literally. And we decided that we wanted to be our own gods. Humanity decided we wanted to forge our own path. And God in justice judged us. He cursed us. The image being shattered, the garden lost to us, and life giving way to death. But he also began a work of restoration to restore us by his grace. A redeemer is promised in Genesis 3.15. We see that word, uh, that, that God is going to send someone who's going to crush the head of the serpent who tempted us into uh, disobedience. And that redeemer we know as Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. He was raised from the dead, proof of the undoing of the fall. Not life giving way to death, but death giving way to Life. But there's more to salvation than simply avoiding uh, ultimate death and hell. Hebrews tells us that Christ is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews chapter 1. Glory, wisdom, love, joy, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. This is who God is. And Jesus being the exact representation of it, that is who Jesus is. And that is who you will be. Or at least that is what God is making you to be through faith in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 29 tells us this clearly. For those whom he foreknew, he's talking about God, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. We're made in God's image. We lost it. Jesus is the perfect representation of God's character, his image. And we in, in salvation are being conformed to him, which means God is restoring our true glory. Like the moon draws its glory from the sun. We draw our glory from God. C.S. Lewis puts it in almost shocking terms in his uh, book, The Weight of Glory. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Does that unnerve you, the way he put that? He's getting our attention. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Glory. That's discipleship. And this glory extends not beyond us individually, but to the community God seeks to, to build among us. You know, the story begins with humanity in a garden with the task cult of cultivation. And the story ends in Revelation with that task complete with the garden city. 
And we read about the character of that community in Revelation chapter 21. Some of you are familiar with 21.4, which says, well, God will wipe away every tear. And that is absolutely true. But beyond that, he's saying in verse 5, the, the apostle John writes down the words of Jesus. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. It's in the future, but it's certain. God is going to do it. And we have this fuller picture of exactly what God is going to do when we get a peek into the throne room in the book of Revelation earlier in this writing, in Revelation chapter 7, an amazing vision of what this community should look like. Verse 9 of chapter 7, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a picture. All nations, all nationalities, Jew and Gentile, men, women, black, white, cats, dogs, Cubs fans, Cardinals fans, all under, the, under one banner, Jesus is king. Is it too extraordinary to believe? I'll say this. It may be too extraordinary to believe, but all of us, even those of us who think we have the most ordinary lives, we all need extraordinary hope to live the lives we're living. We need an extraordinary vision of what can be to believe in the possibility of it. In the movie, A Beautiful Mind, <clears throat> the uh, genius mathematician John Nash, uh, well, we hear his story. And we, we, we hear the story of him looking for a unique idea, but also a falling in love and starting a family. And, and it's discovered after he begins that family that he's been suffering for quite some time with mental illness. And he's eventually diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And the movie depicts the anguish of living with that kind of a disease uh, as Nash's delusions nearly lead him to drown his infant son accidentally uh, in, in the bathtub. And Nash's wife, Alicia, just, she can't take it anymore. And in, in, in the passion and, and fear and terror of that moment, she grabs her child, she loads the child in the car, and Nash pleads with her not to leave. And she pauses, and she resolves that indeed she will stay with Nash, but she tells him, I need to believe that something extraordinary is possible. You know, when we think about <clears throat> discipleship and what God is calling us to, to be like Jesus, and our own personal problems, when we think about the problems of this world and what God is calling us to in terms of righteousness and holiness, you now the problems can seem absolutely insurmountable. It's impossible. There's no way that it's going to happen. But the restoration of all things is what God is working. He is making all things new, and it's a certainty 
We need that extraordinary hope, that extraordinary vision to engage in these projects or we will despair. We need this vision of seeing God's righteousness fleshed out in our own lives and in our communities if we're going to stay faithful. Just to start with the circumstance of the movie, those struggling with mental illness uh, or thinking about engaging in it. Uh, do you think that mental illness is, is an area that God wants to see redemption? Absolutely. Say it like you mean it again. Yes. yes, absolutely. But if you feel called to it or you're struggling with it in your own family, you need some extraordinary hope, a vision of restoration. Now, you may not see it perfectly lived out in this life, but God says you will get tastes of the great city. You need to believe something extraordinary is possible. Those men uh, in Philadelphia arrested in that Starbucks because the manager felt intimidated by their gender and their race. As they engage in life, if they want to keep engaging positively in their society and in their communities, they need to believe something extraordinary is possible. The family with a child addicted to heroin, they need to believe something extraordinary is possible. The woman sexually harassed at, at work by her employer every week but feels trapped in her job, she needs to believe something extraordinary is possible. The middle-aged man being pushed out by younger bucks and the prejudice of his superiors under the guise of a new business strategy. He needs to believe something extraordinary is possible. Now, are you called to engage in all of those places of brokenness? Well, I can't say this. You are called to, to seeing Jesus' character fleshed out in you uh, to, and then to endorse all these places uh, of broken community that, that need restoration. You say, yes, God, the church needs to speak to those places, even if I'm not called regularly to be involved with it. Yes, the church needs to be involved with it. And as I come in contact with it, I need to be faithful in that moment. But then as it relates to a major portion of your time, you need to find some place of brokenness where you can share this extraordinary vision of God's redemption in Jesus Christ and bring comfort Maybe, maybe it's by being involved with uh, those struggling with mental illness. Maybe it's being involved with biblical justice and mercy. Maybe it's being involved in drug awareness. But you need to be engaged somewhere. How is it that God moves us to have that kind of compassion, to become someone that has that level of commitment and love to the people around us? How does he work it among us? Now, when we have a vision that big, we often think that what we need is major funding. We need a big name endorsement. We need media coverage because that's how big things happen, right? You need strength, right? That's how things happen. Not in God's economy. That's not how God works in the world. That's not how he accomplished salvation in Christ. Christ didn't seize the kingship of Israel and overthrow the Roman Empire. His victory was secured through what the world considered failure. Christ won it in meekness and in weakness and in death. 
And so it is with our transformation. I think the most powerful demonstration of this counterintuitive dynamic of transformation is in Luke chapter 7. It's the story of Jesus in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Uh, Some of you, many of you are probably familiar with that story, but for those of you that aren't, it goes like this. Simon is a self-righteous religious leader who wants to size up Jesus, so he invites him to a party at his house. He can get a close look at him that way. And uh, things are going fine until a woman of bad reputation crashes the party. She just shows up and goes to Jesus' feet and weeps. And Simon is indignant at the scene this woman is causing at his dignified party and and indignant at Jesus for tolerating this behavior. So Jesus turns to Simon and, and, and those that are watching and he tells the story of the two debtors. Uh, two people owe one moneylender uh, a, a good sum of uh, cash. You know, one is essentially a, a car loan. You don't need to raise your hand here, but think, you know, do I have a car loan? Uh, th- so many of you know, I, I was in a very serious car accident recently. I'm fine. And uh, I was not at fault, but my car is dead. And uh, I had to get a new car. Guess what? I have a car loan. One owes a car loan. The other owns a mortgage. But neither have the ability to pay it back. So the money lender forgives them both. Who loves the money lender more? Any guesses? The one with the mortgage. If I had a choice of being forgiven my car loan or my mortgage, I'm going to pick my mortgage every day of the week. Simon thinks he, he has a debt, but it's small, manageable. But the woman, she knows her debt is profound. And she's been forgiven. And her recognition of God's grace pours forth in thanks, in devotion, in love. And what is love but the first fruit of the spirit that we see in Galatians chapter 5? What is love but taking on the character of God? What is love but discipleship? We don't become like Christ by working hard, by coming to him with our strength and saying, by the force of my will and my abilities, I'm going to be like you. We have to enter into our weakness and our brokenness and see God's provision in that place. Are you harboring guilt, hiding it? Guess what? Jesus has paid it. He's forgiven you. You have shame, sense of corruption, being twisted in a way that you you, you hate yourself. God has given you new life and a new nature. You feel alienated. He's made you a son. He's made you a daughter. And he calls you into fellowship with him. And as we get real and acknowledge our poverty at these points, he can bring relief. And relief gives way to joy. And you become someone very different. Jack Miller, pastor in the Philadelphia area, put it simply. You are more sinful than you dared imagine. And you got to acknowledge it. To get to this. You are more loved than you dared hope. 
It's in that weakness, in that humility, met with a profound trust in God's mercy that transformation happens. Happens for you personally. Happens for us as a church and a community. And as love and compassion flow into us from God's spirit, it overflows out of us and they flow into the the channels, the, the awful ruts that are out in front of us. They flow into those places to places that need healing. Well, how do we get filled with that love and mercy? By drinking deeply from the sources God has given us. And there's lots of different sources. I'm going to talk about three this morning. First is the word of God. God spoke his message of redemption to the people of the Bible, but he also told them to preserve that message by writing it down. And we call the product of this the Bible, the message of God's redemption. Uh, The apostle Peter said Jesus had the words of eternal life in John chapter 6. And Jesus commissioned his disciples to pass on those teachings to others. And the word is the faithful fulfillment of that commission. It's one of the wells we're given to drink deeply from. Another means is how God embodies the message of grace in signs and symbols, in in the sacraments uh, of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so the message comes to us powerfully in these little dramas played out in, uh, in worship. Baptism is preaching uh, to us the news that, that our sin nature, it's, it's been washed away, that there's new life, and now we're, we belong. We belong to God, and we belong to God's family. That's what Colossians 2 teaches us. And the Lord's Supper uh, proclaims the ongoing connection that we have with Jesus through his grace because of his sacrifice. It challenges us first with our sin. Are we worthy of coming? No, we're not. Challenges us to repent and turn from those sins, but then to be comforted by the fact that despite we are unworthy, he loves us anyway, and he gave himself for us. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11 teaches that to us. And then there's prayer, where we meet with God. And, and what God most desires from us really is fellowship, being with him. Yes, in prayer we communicate uh, our deepest concerns, our desires, and the Lord does want to bring to us the things um, does want us to bring those things to him. But what the Lord wants us to bring most to him is ourselves. And it's in prayer that we're confronted with our worst fear. That God doesn't really love us. That he doesn't want to be with us. And that he will refuse to hear us. And so it's only in prayer that we can be disabused, which means persuaded of the, that it's a lie. We can be disabused of the lie that God doesn't love us. Because in Jesus Christ, he hasn't spared anything to show his love for you. We need these means because we can become so easily discouraged. We can become so easily distracted be taken off mission. And we need to drink deeply from these means that we might remain faithful. There's a movie, maybe some of you have seen it, it's called Moneyball. Have you ever seen the movie? Some of you have. Well, in that movie, Brad Pitt plays the role of a man named Billy Bean 
who's a general manager of the Oakland A's, and he's seeking to put together a winning team with a very small budget and a new approach. And when he turns the team around from a losing uh, franchise to making the playoffs, you think he succeeds, but, but then he gets to the playoffs and they lose in the first round, and, and Billy Bean thinks he's a failure. They didn't get the championship. And in that moment of discouragement, his advisor, Peter Brand, wants to remind him of the truth. Let's watch that scene right now. Come with me to the video room. I want to show you something. No, man, I'm not for film right now. Come on. Seriously. Come on, Billy. Come on. The Visalia Oaks and our 240-pound catcher, Jeremy Brown, who, as you know, scared to run the second base. This was in the game six weeks ago. This guy's gonna start him off with a fastball. Jeremy's gonna take him to deep center. Here's what's really interesting, because Jeremy's gonna do what he never does. He's gonna go for it. He's gonna round first and he's gonna go for it. Okay? This is all of Jeremy's nightmares coming to life. Oh, they're laughing at him. And Jeremy's about to find out why. Jeremy's about to realize that the ball went 60 feet over the fence. He hit a home run and didn't even realize it. How can you not be romantic about baseball? Many of us live in fear of failure. Like that catcher. Like Billy Bean. And that fear keeps us from seeing the truth and living in light of the truth. And while that ball player was crawling back to first base in shame, he should have been basking in the glory of his home run. You know, Christ stood in the batter's box for us. And when Satan put the heat on right down the middle, Jesus swung the bat and sent one right over center field fence. And we're afraid to round first base. We need to live in light of the truth. Jesus won it all. How do, we, how do we fill ourselves with the truth? Well, how did Billy Bean do it? He was brought back to the films, and he looked at him. And if you noticed, after he got what was, what was being said, he went back and looked at it again. We need to go to the films. And for us, that means getting into the Word. 
reading the word, wrestling with it in the company of others, uh, work those truths into our person, into our relationships, maybe in a Bible study, maybe in a Sunday school class, maybe in a mentoring relationship, maybe at women's teaching ministry, maybe at Moms and More this summer, maybe at the men's breakfast. We need to get into the word. We need to put ourselves in worship settings regularly and enter into the drama that we see playing out in the sacraments, in the sermons, in the singing of the songs. I know many of you live very busy lives and you consider Green Tree your home. You feel like you can only come once a month, but I would encourage you, not shame you, but encourage you, oh, you need to be reminded of the truth regularly because life's hard. Would you agree? Oh, come and be reminded of the truth. Jesus loves you. We need to enter into prayer that you'll know that God does receive you, engages with you. Maybe that means going to the Sunday night prayer meeting or coming up here for prayer after church on Sunday morning or some other prayer venue. Like Billy Bean, we need to go back to the tapes. We need to drink deeply from the means God has given us to receive his grace. we got to drink deeply. And I'll bring you back to the question we started with. Who do you want to be? You want to be who you are? Who you're made to be? Some of you say, you know, i got to be me. I need to have that fleshed out. Okay, we can go with that for a while. But remember, who were you made to be? You were made to be like God. And who is the best representation of that? It's Jesus Christ. In terms of character and relational integrity, he has shown you the best version of yourself. Are you willing to enter into that vision and drink deeply from the wells God has given you? Are you willing to be changed? Are you willing to be transformed? And if you are, then engage. Trusting in the mercy of God by going to Sunday school. I know some of you, you have kids that are little, they can't make it. When you have the opportunity to shift from dropping your kids off at Sunday school, you going to worship and then going home, make the shift because you need the gospel message. I need it. Bible study, mentoring relationships, prayer, worship. And if you do that in faith, you have this promise. You will be like him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ who opened up a way of life for us. And we do pray that by your spirit, you would impress upon the message of your love and mercy to us and would it change us. As we prayed at the beginning, would we leave this place more like Jesus than when we came for our good for the good of the world around us, and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.